I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I remember well when the Reserve Bank was just a bond-selling agent of the treasury. He would not be willing to reconsider the Greek program. A smaller-than-expected increase for consumer prices. That the United States economy added almost 5 million jobs. These numbers aren't anyone's opinions or political views. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, it is, without a doubt, a massive crisis that is looming for the UK and Europe. The price of energy is skyrocketing, and the only way to make it through winter, it seems, is through massive government intervention. So isn't this a massive failure of the system? Free market forces are working, but not to our benefit. Something has to change, surely. That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. there's no doubt it's going to be a struggle this winter in the UK and Europe. The EU heads of government have agreed that they're going to subsidise electricity and gas for households and businesses by imposing price caps, uh, which the government is then going to claw back the difference by, or some of it anyway, by taxing electricity producers on their excess profits. A windfall tax, but they actually prefer to call it a solidarity contribution. It is the EU. But is there something fundamentally wrong with how energy is priced? So, Steve, interestingly, energy prices were already going up before the war. So in Europe in the second half of 2021, the EU had already seen uh, that half of the year compared to the same half the year before. Prices had gone up more than 10%. And in Estonia, Norway and Sweden, they were up more than 50%. So this is not just a problem. It's been exacerbated by the war. But it looks like we were we were faced with rising energy prices anyway. Why would that be? Well, mainly because we're starting to run out of easily tractable uh, fossil fuel resources. That's uh, something which is argued uh, decades ago by a guy called uh, uh, King Herbert, who um, was a uh, petroleum engineer in Texas. And he looked at the pattern of, of, of individual um, wells and how they have come up with peak performance and then slightly decline over time. And what he saw was at the aggregate level, a tendency to reach a peak, which is known as Hubert's peak, after which you'd be able to re- not be able to extract any more oil. Uh, rather, you expect oil, but at a lower rate. So rather than the accelerating increase in oil levels we're seeing now, you'd get a peak and then a fall. And the actual, but if people find that strange to, to reason about, the fundamental idea behind it is that you can you start from having exploited 0% of available oil, and you will ultimately reach exploiting 100% of available oil. The slope of that curve is Hubert's peak. And when you get to the 50% mark, you start to have a declining rate of extraction because fundamentally it's getting harder mm. and harder to get the energy out of the yeah, ground. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's like the, the the cost of accessing the energy versus the the energy that's actually produced. It's the efficiency of that energy uh, that you that you're producing. But in but Norway and Sweden, so Norway in particular, I mean, a lot of their energy they they were up fifty percent or more. A lot of their energy is uh, from hydroelectricity. 
now I know that, of course, they've had problems because, I mean, this year in particular, there's been a drought, so they've not been able to produce as much hydroelectricity, and maybe that was part and parcel of it for last year as well. But on an international scale, I mean, energy is priced on an international scale, isn't it? So if you are inputting in uh, to the international market and receiving from the international market, then wouldn't, in theory, the price variation from country to country be, be minimised? And yet the differences are huge. Yeah, well, the, the, a lot of the reasons are you can't let the full cost of energy pass on to in consumers, and that was even even Liz Truss has come down on the side of that and said there's got to be a cap on the amount you expect people to pay for for energy. But yeah, the prices are you know the, the, there's the idea that there's going to be a global one price because it's a, a uniform commodity is another piece of neoclassical economic delusion. People will charge uh, what the market will bear in various places. Uh, the other places have automatic access to the oil, places like Kuwait, for example. Uh, oil is, will always be cheap there because they get first takes out of their domestic production. So, um, yeah, but oil, oil prices fundamentally have to rise because the, the whole basis of capitalism has been exploiting cheap energy sources. Um, that's if you if you go back and say you know what actually caused the growth of wealth from the time of the wealth of nations had bugger all to do with the division of labor what it really was uh, sourced by was the introduction of cheap energy in the form of coal and ultimately then oil and with those cheap energy sources you didn't pay to build them this is the point that people just don't get their heads around nobody made the oil nobody made the coal so what you're doing is by digging up something out of the ground, you have given yourself a concentrated form of energy that you can you can use to run other processes. Now, the question is how much energy you have to put in before you've got that concentrated form. If you go back to the uh, early 1800s or 1700s, uh, you, you could you know, a pick and shovel were all you needed and, and a barrel to take the mine out the, the coal out of the mine. Um, when the first oil strikes began, it wasn't quite as simple as the Beverly Hillbillies, but you know, dig a hole in the ground in Pennsylvania and bang oil spurted out of it. So the energy costs of getting energy out of the ground were trivial. Now what we're seeing is yeah, the energy costs are becoming enormous, and that will mean rising energy prices, war in the Ukraine war or no Ukraine war. Well, I mean, interestingly, so you know, renewables is getting cheaper than uh, than fossil fuels, isn't it? Because of that efficiency factor. So actually, even though Norway saw a big increase in uh, its electricity prices, it's still actually the cheapest electricity in Europe. So if you compare Norway uh, per uh, average price per kilowatt hour, this is July 2022, so it's fairly recent numbers. It's about uh, 12 for Norway. Uh, in the UK, it's about 52. Wow. That is a, yeah. a m- massive difference. And I guess that is because the UK is dependent on importing uh, energy, whereas Norway is producing it domestically. But, I mean, that, that idea of international energy, I mean, that, you, you say it's just a, a fallacy of neoclassic economics that, you, that you know, things should equalise based on international trade. I mean, this is just st- sticks out like the proverbials, doesn't it? It does. Like Australia is probably the classic example of that because Australian politicians negotiated absolutely dreadful deals with uh, minerals companies in Australia. So they can basically take our stuff and flog it overseas, take Australia's stuff and flog it overseas um, without having paying anything resembling royalties. Whereas Norway is, is incredibly emphatic. If you want to mine what we've got under our granite, you have to um, pay a, um, a, a decent uh, royalty fee back to the Norwegian wealth fund so those things uh give you 
like in, in Australia, and in one side of Australia, the all the eastern states, energy is incredibly expensive because all of the gas that's produced in those states is shipped off for export. And in fact, a lot of what Australia actually uses all as gas is re-imported Australian gas, which is crazy. But in Western Australia, the, the governor there said 15% of the output has to be reserved for local uh, consumers. And you... Um, uh, there are other limitations as well on the oil companies. And what that's meant is West Australia has extremely cheap energy prices right now, far cheaper than the eastern seaboard. Yeah, that is crazy, isn't it? That uh, exporting to re-import back, that reminds me uh, back in the telecom days, there was a thing called tromboning where it was so expensive to deliver, to terminate a call uh, locally within Australia. It was actually cheaper to send it overseas than come back in as an international carrier and terminate the calls. That was called tromboning because you'd go into Indonesia wow. and then back in, out, then back in again. That's how crazy the, uh, the you know, how distorted the market can become. But talking about market mm-hmm. distortion, so you mentioned Liz Truss and she, together with the EU and, you know, many other parts of the world, probably ultimately, but certainly in that part of the world, are looking at capping energy prices so that people can, you know, survive uh, this winter. Mm. And uh, that is supposedly going to drive down gas prices. But if the government is going to pay the gap, wouldn't it actually have the other effect? You know, because whenever the government gets involved, the prices always go up. Wouldn't those gas producers say, "Okay, so you want to cap the price at this level? Fine. And you're going to pay the difference? Ooh. (laughs) Wouldn't they just go, oh, it's just got even more expensive? Yeah, I mean, it's we, the, the bottom line is we have to prevent those costs of energy being passed on to the poor, particularly in the UK, uh, because without they, they won't be able to afford the energy, or if they buy the energy, they've got to not have food for their kids. Uh, that's social breakdown material. So at a fundamental yeah. level, if you have a have a, a large society, you can't let a significant six sure. segment of it. Because but we have poor. to do it. But by the government saying that, look, we're going to pay the difference, doesn't that mean the energy mm-hmm. providers are, you know, uh, I mean, two things. People aren't going to change their behaviour if the prices don't change. Now, we have to look after the poor, but the very rich, if, they, if they're if also getting their prices capped per kilowatt hour, then they're not going to change their behaviour. So scarcity is going to become an issue. But but more to the point, those energy providers are going to say, oh, so you're going to pay the difference. So you don't really care what the price is. If, if you're going to keep it at that level for the consumer, we can just keep on pushing our price up and raking even more profits. And Liz Truss is saying, oh, we're not going to have any windfall tax it'll go well, double win yeah I know, again they're the most powerful institutions in society these days so they, they mm. will do very very well out of it and of course there hasn't been a dramatic increase in the cost of production for them so uh, particularly if you look at the energy cost where you know using other forms to generate electricity but even with gas and oil uh, the production cost hasn't changed all that much what's cost changed is the demand pressure get hold of the oil and that's so in uh, high because energy is a complete bottleneck in production. Uh, I've, we had a bit of a go at a neoclassical economist who didn't understand that recently. But the basic story is that without energy, you can't do anything. And therefore, if you want to do anything, you've got to pay, uh, you've got to buy energy. And that puts a, the, the power on the negotiation over price firmly with the suppliers, which we're seeing now. So they would make enormous windfall profits out of the current situation. And you'd be getting windfall profits for organizations you do not want to um, invest their um, um, in, in invest their uh, funds in devising 
you know, alternative technology. They're mm. not going to do that. They're going to pour it back into bloody coal and oil. For sure, because that's what they know and that's what the infrastructure they've got set up. But there are competitors that are obviously providing renewables and, you know, we're told that the cost of renewables is getting cheaper whilst the cost of fossil fuels uh, is increasing and, as you said, is becoming less efficient because it's getting harder to tap the stuff. Uh, and yet, of course, when you, as far as the consumer is concerned, they're just buying uh, electricity. Uh, and so, you know, you pay a fixed price for electricity, whatever the makeup is, whether it's uh, fossil mm-hmm. fuels or, or renewable. So, uh, and so suppliers are paying the same to those providers. The, the, the domestic suppliers are paying the same, irrespective of what the source is as well. So that is pushing up, ironically, the cost of renewables, isn't it, up to the level where the, mm. the price is being led by the fossil fuel providers, which in normal circumstances would say that is great because that would encourage more people to invest in renewable energy because if it's a lower cost uh, and the the same amount of return, then they're getting better returns. Therefore, it's a better investment than, than fossil fuels. But right now, we're in a situation where you know we're still paying the high price, even though a lot of it is coming from renewable energy providers. I mean, there's you, you know, I've heard on the radio people saying, "Look, my gas bill, my gas bill, my electricity bill, I should say, is like this as well." A cat's just walked in, by the way. If you can hear meowing, um, <laughs> um, the uh, ever, ever so often the professionalism just slips on this podcast, just in case you haven't noticed. Uh, but yeah, but, so mm-hmm. my energy bill, my energy provider says, uh, you know, it's green energy. Uh, and so people are saying, well, hang on a second. If, if it's all green energy and therefore you're not using gas from, uh, from from Russia, why is my energy bill going up? And that is because obviously... Well, that's actually... That, that's well answered by a new paper by Michael Grubb, who's a colleague of mine who worked in the, uh, the English National Institute for Economic and Social Research. Because what has actually happened is a bunch of economists have got between the, the, uh, the demand it. and supply in that real-world market. And that's where the problem's coming from. So what they've done... Uh, is they've, they've they've stuck with their conventional textbook model of how prices are set: rising supply curve, falling demand curve. And according to their theory, the best social outcome is the point of intersection between the two, where demand curve cuts the supply curve. Now, what that translates as is that they actually believe the cost of production rises as you increase output. That's what they call diminishing marginal productivity, and it comes across in their models as rising marginal cost. Now, we actually might actually cover this in a separate podcast because it gets quite quite hairy and technical. But the fallback is that believing this is an accurate description of how markets actually operate, economists design pricing systems to ape what they thought happens in the real world. They're completely wrong. That's what they've done. So what they do is the, the wholesale markets set the price according to the cost of production or the or the or the bid cost of the bid price of the most expensive supplier. So, oil and you know, and if solar and wind are really cheap right now, so rather than getting the benefit of those cheap prices, all energy prices, for, you know, the form of electricity and so on, are set at the cost of production of the or the tendering price of the highest cost um, agent. So. The price is way over what an actual market would deliver. It's just this fantasy system set up that means the price you pay uh, is the price of the most expensive producer. Mm. And because of the cost of gas going up, that's the gas is the most expensive producer. So right. they get enormous recompense as well. But it also flows through to the 
you know, companies that are providing energy in different forms and more cheaply. But it's still a far higher price than what the market would actually determine if there was an actual standard market. And that is based on marginal costs, is it? Because the marginal cost of gas obviously is way higher because they've uh, that, that they have basically, you know, sunk all their costs in all their exploration and now they're just uh, pumping it out cheaply versus fossil fuels where massive investment in infrastructure but the marginal cost beyond that once you've been, built your wind farms for example the mm. marginal cost is is negligible so there's i mean one is infrastructure investment heavy and the uh, uh, with low marginal cost versus one which is uh, lower infrastructure costs higher marginal cost uh, i guess it you know over time then that 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 difference is going to be so much greater the marginal cost of uh, well the the cost the fixed cost plus the marginal cost if you take it over you know the the cost of producing uh, providing energy from fossil fuels over over the longer term is is going to be much cheaper but of course this is a short term game yeah and um, the, the the main problem is that in nowhere in the world does marginal cost pricing actually apply except in artificial markets invented by economists who then pose that rule so uh, it, it, it would if we simply said that we'd let the market rule in the classical sense of the market the cheapest energy supplies are the uh, renewables now in the uk they would set a price which would bankrupt the um, uh, the high cost uh, oil and gas producers and just back back on one point about the marginal cost of, of gas gas has to be mined and, and gas is basically methane gas coming out of a well that's what it is really so-called natural gas. And in that sense, it's a byproduct of the process of finding oil in the first place. So it's a bonus to the companies that as well as having the liquid stuff they they export in tankers, they also get this gaseous stuff they can pump down pipes. But there is one way in which marginal cost does apply because to actually make the, make the gas move down the, the pipes, you have to have turbines. And if you want to get a higher... Uh, volume of, of, of gas going through, you've got to spin those turbines at a higher rate. And so that's what gives you a rising cost of the gas as you increase the uh, the usage of gas. Whereas for oil and for coal, fundamentally, uh, you don't have that same, you know, you, the way you get it to the consumer is whack it in a boat, put it in a tanker, tanker pumps it into a petrol station, you refill it at the petrol station. Um, coal, same sort of thing, gets dumped into a loader, onto a, a Pacific container, uh, floated to its location, offload there and put in. Uh, you don't have that rising marginal cost from rising volumes. So gas is, is in a unique position. And ironically, that means it's what's causing the serious dilemmas for consumers in Europe today. So why regulate prices? I mean, obviously, you need to step in as as the government is doing now. But why why set a price? I mean, you, you said yourself, why wouldn't the market decide? If, I, if I've if i got wind farms and I talk to the national grid and I say, hey, look, I can provide energy for you for half the price that those people who've got uh, gas-fueled power stations, I can do it for half the price per kilowatt hour. They'd say, great, well, let's start buying from you and that, that'll bring our overall price down. Why wouldn't it work like that? But, but because they don't have capacity. And this this is what's going to bite us very badly in the next century the next decade, frankly, uh, that is we don't have the capacity of non-carbon-based energy to supply the demand we currently have. And even as fast as a new solar or a new wind are rolling out around the world, particularly in the UK, it appears. It's like a even third, as fast third as comes from wind, doesn't it, in the UK? I mean, it is a size of... Yeah, uh, obviously, sometimes the wind stops, but it's in the North Sea where the wind always blows. So, you know, it's it's... But it's not totally secure, obviously. 
No, but that's that's a major advantage for the UK over time. But uh, in the meantime, uh, these the energy costs of uh, you know of, 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 of renewables are so much lower than fossils, but they can't scale. So if you need the energy at the scale we currently consume it, you've got to be approaching fossil fuel companies and. Uh, said the gas companies are the ones that have a problem about rising costs with rising demand, but the coal and the oil uh, firms are going to be dancing all the way home. Right. Well, let's. So we need them to change. Let's. We'll, we'll explore that in just a second. This is the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll. There's more to come. So stay with us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, we were talking about fossil fuel companies versus renewables, uh, and we are going to need fossil fuel companies for a long time because, I mean, we need that, you know, the argument that's often given, we need that base load. You know, we need somebody that is going to provide energy when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. Um, but at some point, isn't there a danger that... If we left the market to uh, to run its own course, that uh, if renewable energy generally comes cheaper than fossil fuels, then it's going to be un- uneconomic for fossil fuel providers if we are just calling on them to provide that base load and we're getting cheaper energy from elsewhere. So, we, we, you know, fossil fuel companies need, I mean, do we need them? Uh, yeah. And if they become more expensive than renewables, do we have to just bear that cost? It's sort of like, do we need to pay that cost because we need to cope with peak demand? I think the whole mistake goes back to national to privatizing these companies in the first place and I believe it would make the mark work better. This this is again economists stuffing their useless noses into joints they should never be allowed into. And they've created artificial markets with artificially high prices. Um and, and which would normally the retail sector has been shielded from the impact of that. But with the Ukraine war and uh, the Russian gas boycott of Europe, then suddenly uh, those prices, uh, the cost would, uh, if they were passed on to the consumers, would mean a tenfold co- increase in their energy prices. And the poor end of the of the uh, Western uh, population simply can't afford those prices. So you, this is where you, you've got to go back to what you got rid of in the first place, which is state provision of energy. Yeah, and and yet, you know, when the, when the government said, well, we're going to open this up to more competition, I mean, they were talking about the retail level, weren't they? And they're, they're, those retailers were all fighting for a tiny margin on what they were buying at a wholesale level. But it's the wholesale level that was being controlled by the by the big players. So, yeah. 
But that's always what the crazy rules yeah. are. It made not one jot of difference, except for the fact a lot of those retailers went out of business, a lot of them over the over the last few years in the, the UK. But if you wanted to keep it to competition, I mean, that, that's the thing, isn't it? There's just not the competition because of the, is it just the, the it, size of the players involved? Well, I mean, the competition is another furphy, which actually spent us another special podcast on that topic alone. But neoclassicals, to, to them, competition is the, the economist vitamin C. You got a problem, take more vitamin C. It, you know, it, it solves everything. The reality is the nature of competition and the nature of the industries is completely different to what occurs in their textbooks. So in terms of the, the scale of the producers, neoclassical economists pretend there's an infinite number of oil companies, each producing an infinitesimal amount of oil, which we then somehow integrate to getting into you know, the 40 litres we pump into our car uh, for transport one day. Um, that's that's their fictional world. In the real world, there's a tiny handful of companies involved in dominant industries. One of my favorites isn't oil, but it's the semiconductor manufacturing. There's one Dutch firm that makes all the machines for submicron uh, fabrication. So the whole idea of saying competition, you know, first of all, if that if it were true that competition was always the best, then there would be dozens, hundreds of producers of microprocessor plants, uh, machinery. There aren't. Uh, so the whole idea that perfect competition can be used as a standard is bollocks. And yet that's what they're effectively done to create the uh, the artificial market in the UK and in most of the rest of the world. But I wonder whether the thinking was when, in effect, uh, energy was privatised and we saw the, uh, the arrival of all of these retail players in the UK, and I'm sure it's happened in many other parts of the mm. world as well. I wonder whether the thinking was, mm. well, one company will say, well, we're going to buy fossil fuels from these guys, we're going to buy green energy from these guys, we'll pay a, a different price, and the mix of energy that we buy will determine the lowest price that we can offer to the consumer. And so it's going to be, you know, uh, uh, whoever buys the best but with, the, with the best fuel mix, or the best energy mix that can uh, satisfy the consumer the most. So that would be seen as competition, wouldn't it? Even though you're, you're dealing with large players to provide... But it's an them. artificial form of competition. It's not real competition. It's been created by neoclassical economists. And, and we're now seeing the impact of letting these morons uh, affect government policy. So it's uh, right, you know, but, but, we, but, should, but, we should go back to a nationalised system. Right, okay. But I'm just saying, assuming we don't do that in a hurry, I mean, I'm just trying to think, and, you know, I'm sure economists are behind all the bad in the world. But the but the <laughs> but the very idea that you know if you, if you if you're if you've got a company and you're selling something to the consumer, um, then I, I, in some ways I see energy as you know similar to you know the telecommunications industry, which I know a bit better because it's still a utility at the end of the day. You're selling something on a retail basis to the consumer. You want to provide it at the lowest price possible. Now, if you're not producing the uh, the energy yourself, but you're buying it from elsewhere, then aren't you going to look at the mix of suppliers and say, well, okay, we just need whoever's going to provide us the most reliable and lowest cost energy, uh, you know, electricity per kilowatt hour, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, electricity is electricity. You don't get low-grade electricity or high-grade electricity. It's all to do with price and then how you're distributing it to the consumer. So why wouldn't it work mm. that you would be getting, you'd have competitors there saying, who can we buy the best mix from? Because then the fossil fuel, the fossil fuel companies would be at a disadvantage 
to those renewable energy providers if they can come along and say, hey, look, we can do this cheaper. And you go, great. Well, when you can, we'll buy it from you. When you can't, we'll have to get it from the fossil fuel guys. But ultimately, you're going to lower our price. Thanks so much. We'll sign there. The, the basic problem with saying you can do a, a better energy mix through the market is that you can't, uh, you know, if one company decides it can do a better a portfolio of oil, gas, and coal, uh, it can't then ship the end consumer a lump of coal for their car. We're tied into particular forms of energy for particular uses, and it isn't really a case of pooling the different potential um, fossil fuels together. That's only the case of using to produce electricity, where, of course, one electron is just like any other. So, But, it, but in terms of our transportation system, you can't put coal in cars. Uh, you you can't put oil into your gas heating system. Uh, you've got to completely convert your car to go from oil to gas. Uh, there are technological lock-ins that mean it simply isn't possible to do that portfolio balancing, which might apply You know, if you're going vegetable shopping and you want to get a range of nutrients, and there's dozens of ways to get the combination. That's the picture people have. But factories are not like our stomachs. Our stomachs can cope with virtually anything. A factory, if you put the wrong product in, the production line stops. And this, this is why it is, you know, energy is such a crucial uh, sticking point in the economy, because you've got machines which will only turn if they're fed with either coal or, mm. uh, or oil or, or, uh, or gas or electricity. Yeah. And if you don't feed them in, the machines don't turn. Yeah, but that's, so you've mm. got... In, it's an incredibly powerful and dangerous industry as a result of that. But it's, that is changing, isn't it? We are moving towards uh, electricity. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg is the new business minister. He might actually see that uh, coal-powered cars uh, are progress. But by and large, we are moving uh, to you know electricity driving almost anything. So if that's the case, uh, does mm. it really matter how that electricity is originated? You know, you would just take whatever the cheapest source of that electricity is, wouldn't you? Whether it is fossil fuels or renewables. And we're told, you know, renewables is getting to be the the cheaper solution uh, and of course you know so it, it is electricity at the end of the day and cars you know mm. almost perhaps the last stronghold we are moving towards cars uh being electric at an alarming rate right now not alarming i mean it's good news we are but you know, in, in the meantime we're also going through global warming where that should be telling us to cut back fossil production entirely and then we'd go towards but in terms of the like the number of cars that are necessary to be converted from petrol or oil to uh, uh, or gas rather, be converted to electricity is huge. There's pretty much one car per person in most Western countries. Now, in the UK that means 60 million cars. Now, the 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 min minerals required to replace all of those with electric, uh, the time it would take to do that are just out of the park compared yeah, to our current yeah. situation. So, just back on this marginal pricing, I'm 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 curious as to why you would see. So we're setting energy prices based on the marginal cost of producing energy by the most mm -hmm. expensive means, and that is the market leader and everything else follows in, in price. But how can you just base it on, on the marginal? I mean, the logic, obviously, of the marginal cost is, well, if you've got 10% uh, more customers, how much extra would it cost to service that extra 10% given the, the infrastructure you've got in place? Mm -hmm. But I mean, you can't apply. But you you can't ignore the fact that you might have invested heavily uh, to reach your existing number of consumers. So how can you ignore the fixed cost on when when you're setting that price? You can't. And this is if you actually look at how costing actually applies in most corporations, uh, fixed costs are an enormous percentage of total costs. Something like, uh, on average, Alan Blinder survey in 1998 in the USA found the average level of of uh, fixed costs per unit of output was about 40% of the cost. 
So with the, mm. the neoclassicals and their fantasy textbooks, they presume that fixed costs are a tr virtually trivial uh, component, like, you know, 2%, 4%. Uh, if you look at the graphs, you'll see in children's fantasy books like Mancou's Microeconomics, that's what you'll find. Uh, but in the in the real world, uh, the, the, the because the fixed costs are enormous and the variable costs are falling, your target is to get as much of the volume as you can possibly man, uh, manage. And normally you're constrained by competition from rivals on that front. So you can't mark up the price of Teslas too much because people will buy Toyotas, that sort of, that sort of effect. But when it comes to energy, uh, it's, it, it, you, you have a specific needs you have to be tailored to initially, and you can't uh, you know, bargain one off the other. But the, 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 the marginal cost is as false in our vision of how those firms operate yeah. as it is for, for ordinary firms. And the thing is normally, what, what do you have with economists? They have a set of models, a set of ideas about how things operate, which are fundamentally wrong. Um, and they, they can't do anything about it because the real world exists much to their chagrin and behaves differently to their models. But of course, in it, once they decide, when we used to have, you know, power companies were all public, and then over time, the, the privatization fad hit. The idea behind that privatization was that you get more efficient, uh, more innovation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you got nothing of the sort. You got a backlog. So, uh, you know, and you got, you're also trying to get them to mine a resource we're running out of. So you need a visionary attitude and the vision of an oil and gas executive doesn't pass the past three months. <laughs> so um, the idea that, so if, if you are a lower marginal cost, well, I mean, let's forget about the marginal cost. Let's just say, you know, over, let's say over, over the life of uh, wind turbines, for example, uh, it's costing you mm. less if you, you know, if you allow the fixed and variable cost together over, over a defined period, whatever you want to make it. 20 years, for example, mm. uh, at, at, at a certain level of production, the, you know, the maximum capacity that you could produce from that wind farm, uh, you, you would come in at, at a price per kilowatt hour uh, that you could sell for with a decent margin. Are you telling me that the way it's regulated currently, you wouldn't be paid that? You'd be paid way more than that because you would have to be way, paid. Way, way more. You have, way to be more. Paid, you have to be paid whatever the marginal cost is for producing uh, fossil fuels, whatever the highest which price comes is. Out with, which, which is actually not a real marginal cost anyway. It's generated by the bid prices that uh, companies fit into supply the market, I think, almost on a, on a daily basis. So uh, it's a completely fallacious view as to the costs of production. The firms that are tendering this would be throwing champagne parties now because the difference between the cost of production of the gas and oil they're delivering and the sale price is just astronomical so, so they're doing very well out of this so why wouldn't why would, of course they are we see we we see that in their in their profits which uh, liz trust has decided she's not going to that she's not going to tax she's uh, very happy to to see them celebrate but why wouldn't you just change that regulation and say okay we, we're not going to uh, nationalize energy we are going to keep things the way that they are but with one change, whatever you want to supply uh, energy at, whatever price you think you can get away with, uh, however low you want to go, do it. And that wouldn't that mean that fossil fuel companies would lose out to these new players? Again, it's a question of it's a question of volume. Uh, if you if you use one hundred percent of the renewable energy and nuclear and uh, hydro, 
of a country, 85% of the, the energy is the remainder is covered by fossil fuels. <clears throat> Pardon me, a cough tickle in my throat. So that um, it, it's just the sheer fact that you you have a vision where you, you implicitly we think uh, you've got all these different competitors who can supply the entire market at the prices right. Now, the reality is all these competitors, none of them can supply the entire market. Uh, it'd be possible for oil, oil producers to bump up their production of oil quite easily uh, with a bit of an increase in marginal cost, not a lot, and then cover you know all the energy that used to be supplied by by wind farms and, and, and turbines. But it doesn't work in the other direction. Uh, right. So what you said, so what you're saying is that these these uh, these companies that are providing for a small portion of the market, they may their costs may be cheaper, but they're being their price is being driven up because they can be because the because they the, there's still the demand for the energy that they're providing. Yeah. Uh, so they can say, well, we'll provide it for the same price or a little bit cheaper or whatever. Uh, so the intersection between the supply and demand curve, Steve, hmm. uh, we can certainly rip that page out of the book, can't we? Because it's not at all determined by the cost. Cost of production for that particular energy source—it's the—it's—it's it's the market cost of which you are—you're you're playing in that marketplace. Yeah, yeah, and, and we we don't have a chance of competing with it. So um, it, it is a—it's a crazy scheme to bring the market in at that level, um, and and the craziness actually relates to the power production at any particular point in time as well, because they've got these incredibly high so-called marginal costs when, when there's high levels of demand, which is what's happening now, demand compared to the physical supply, then the price spikes like crazy. Now, uh, but when, when they don't have an issue like this, the price plunges. And that volatility is occurring in the wholesale market, but normally is not passed on to the retail market. That's what's happening now. But I, if you look at the Australian situation, I had a colleague, Leith Elder, who gave me quite a bit of interesting inside information on how that market operates. And the re reality is, given the price spikes that occur over time and all the volatility and demand for energy, guess how many days you have to operate? Uh, it, 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 hang on. If, guess if, how many days would, would it take that if you didn't operate during those days, you'd go bankrupt as an as a energy producer? How many days out of a well, year do you um, think? Uh, four? Something low, obviously. Close, three, yeah. three, mm. yeah. Because only the, the price on three days of, over a year is so much higher. You know, you've got peak demand for air conditioners mm. uh, in a hot country, peak demand for heating in a, 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 a wet, a cold country. Uh, that then means that when they when the bidders put their prices in, uh, to actually saturate the entire demand, the price is astronomical. So there must, and that's what's actually causing. A yeah. So because of peaks and troughs, I'm, I'm desperately trying to find an answer without saying because I, you know, I don't want people who listen to this podcast. And I know we've got some new listeners. I don't want people to listen and go, oh God, every week it's the same. The Steve Keen saying nationalize it. Uh, and so I'm desperately <laughs> trying to keep energy in private hands, but I'd avoid these distortions. But the the problem is, of course, if you avoid distortions, you create other distortions. Because one way, if you've got peaks and troughs, would be to say, well, okay, there needs to be some sort of fund, for example, if you are an energy provider. Uh, you need to pay a slice of money that goes into a, a fund to subsidize when prices go high. And is that a way of you ensuring that you don't push your prices up too much when uh, when there's a shortage of supply and, a, and peak demand? You know, can you equalize it in, in, in some way while still keeping it all in private hands? No, I, I basically think it's, it was a mistake to put it in private no, hands. No, nationalize I'm it. I'm not going to back down. We should renationalize <laughs> energy. 
um, there's some argument about different providers providing some competition in that market. But ironically, the electricity is the ultimate expression of the homogenous market view that neoclassicals have. There's no difference between one electron and another. They don't even arrive in your building. They're fluctuating or, or traveling along the wires. Uh, so electricity is the ultimate homogenous good. And in that sense, that's the ultimate uh, test bed for neoclassical economics. And even there, it's stuffed up. So I, you know, we have, we have to receive, treat energy as an essential service, which can't be cut off due to either um, corporate values or prices that are too high for consumers to, to consume. And that implies it's one of those things which should be publicly owned. Well, look, next week we're going to look at shadow banking. What is it? And uh, please don't tell you, say the answer is nationalise it. Uh, maybe the answer is to get rid of it altogether. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll look at that next week. Good to talk anyway, Steve. Thanks, Matt. And that's it for this week. By the way, if you're enjoying the Debunking Economics podcast, don't forget to tell your friends and make sure you subscribe. Uh, whichever app you're on, make sure you leave a rating. Make sure it's five stars, unless it's out of 10, of course. Uh, but uh, we'll catch you again next week for another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast. Thanks for listening this week. The Debunking Economics podcast. 